This podcast may contain graphic and or explicit content that may not be suitable for some listeners, especially kids like me. <laughs> Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to the Real Life Podcast brought to you by the Thin Blue Line for Women. In this podcast, We open up and talk about real-life issues as they relate to first responders. It's raw, it's real, and it's about time. I'm Tamara, your host. Thanks for joining me. In this bonus episode, I'll be talking with Greg, an EMT officer, also known as the Broken Medic. We discussed the horrible trauma he dealt with at a very early age and the trauma he experienced on the job. Hey everyone, this is Tamara and welcome to the Real Life Podcast. I'm joined today by Greg and I met Greg on Twitter. His Twitter handle is Broken Medic, and that name says it all. So, hi, Greg. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. How you doing? I'm good. Oh, I can hear your clock. How cute. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're going to have that in the background, too. That and dog. That's okay. Hey, this is, this is real life. Thank you so much for coming on. You're going to tell your story, and I'm so happy that you are because I think it's important for people to hear your story. I don't know your story yet, so this is new to me, too. I think it's important for everyone to hear it. And um, you're actually my first gentleman on the podcast, which is awesome. And you're also the first EMT on, which is, you'll, you'll tell us all about that. So I'm, I'm really happy about today's conversation that we're going to have. So before we begin our conversation, can you tell the listeners, first of all, what EMT stands for before we get into this? EMT stands for Emergency Medical Technician. Thank you, because a lot of listeners don't know that. Yeah, it's an entry level into the the ambulance fire rescue game. Okay. Um, Because a lot of listeners don't know that. Sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, we throw acronyms at everyone and and they're not sure what it stands for. So EMT. So give us a little background of how you got into working as an EMT. Well, that's kind of a long story. When I was a child, uh, I was 10 years old. Um, summer day, middle of June, hot outside. The state troopers came and visited my house. And I found out that my sister had died in a car crash. Um, pretty traumatic for the family. And growing up as an only child, when you had a sister for 10 years of your life, it, it's different. And you know, I dealt with a lot of grief and everything at a young age. And basically, I always had that drive in me to try to help another family not have to go through that. And basically, by doing that, I felt like I could make a difference in the world. So, you know, I could have gone the police route, could have gone a bunch of different routes, but the fire department kind of fell into my lap because we were having really bad wildfires that 
that year. And I went and signed up just to volunteer for them. And they called me back. And that's where all my training and everything began. Um, how, so, how old were you when you started that training? I was, let's see, I was in 99. I was 24 years old. And, okay. and you know, I got married at a young age, so I was working. And I didn't even know how to go about becoming a firefighter or becoming anything because I was just working to provide for my small family that I had at the time. And mm -hmm. I, uh, when the fire department got in touch with me, they told me, we'll take care of everything. We'll train you. We just need people. And I was like, sign me up. That sounds great. <laughs> and that, that, that began a very rewarding part of my life that I'm very proud of. Um, I start, I started off as a volunteer firefighter and in a combination department like Clay County Fire Rescue, um, we are a paid department that is supplemented by volunteers, meaning the okay. volunteers did everything the paid guys did, except we had normal jobs during the day or night. And we wow. volunteered our time to do the exact same calls as them. So we were held to the same standards as them. And we answered to the same authorities that they did. But, uh, you know, we, we also had jobs that we had to go to during the daytime. So how, how long did you do the volunteer work for EMT before you actually started the train, the actual training? It was from 99 until 2006. Um, I actually oh, so you got, were a volunteer for a while. Yes, I was a volunteer for a while. And that's really where I really cut my teeth into the whole, um, into the whole fire rescue and ambulance. Because in my department, we have engines, tankers, ladders, but we also have what we call rescues, where it's a manned ambulance. And the rescue and the engine goes on every call together. So you have manpower and you have a transport unit that shows up with the engine. So I really, really got to enjoy the bedside manner part of being on a rescue. And that is where I kind of gravitated towards. We still went into fires. We still worked extrication on car crashes. But once we took the patient out of the vehicle or you know, even on a medical call, once we got the patient out of the house, we got him in the back of the ambulance and that was our emergency room on wheels. And it just fascinated mm -hmm, right. me because we had all the toys, all the bells and whistles. And, you know, you just, you basically are in a mobile emergency room and you get to care for that patient all the way to the hospital. And then you go turn the patient over to the hospital in the best condition that you can possibly get them there in. And that really fascinated right. me. Um, in 2006, unfortunately, on my quote-unquote real job, I got injured. And that took me out from the fire side for a couple years because I had surgery. And I went to rehabilitation and got stronger. But at about 90 95%, I wasn't 100%. And I couldn't at that point 
confidently ride on a uh, an engine and go into a fire and put other people's lives at risk just in case something happened to me, in case I went down. So at that point, I right, backed right. off from the fire department and actually went paid as an EMT on private ambulance. So, okay. So, what kind of training did you have to do for that? Um, that really, I had most of my other training from the fire department, but I did go through my, you know, on top of having my fire training and my my emergency vehicle operations course training from the fire department, I just had to go and get my EMT certification. So, I went and got my EMT oh, okay. cert, and they I literally got hired the first place I went to just straight out of school they were like oh you were clay county fire rescue oh you know these people and just bam i was right in (laughs) so that was basically the whole interview and i was in already and i i got on a shift which on the ambulance service that i worked for um we had three shifts just like the fire department alpha bravo charlie and we worked 24 hours on and 48 hours off and we did ICU transports. So we were taking ventilator patients from ICU to ICU. We would back up the county whenever the county re- resources were reused up with the county and they needed a- additional ambulances for calls. Um, I had a really good time doing that. And that was, that was a great job. I actually enjoyed going to work every How day. How long did it take you? I'm no, sorry to cut you off. How how long did it take you to get your EMT certification? Like a month? Was it six <sighs> months? Like how long is that process? Let's see. I was working a 40-hour job at the time and going to school two nights a week. I want to say it took three months of schooling, just going two nights a week and on a Saturday. And... That was class time, and then you had to do your clinicals along with that, which was a couple days in an emergency room, and then I think it was 40 hours on an ambulance, on a rescue. And Oh, okay. So it's formal training, but it isn't super long. But you really, Mm -hmm. you know, just like anything else, you learn from the book, and then you go on the streets, and it's like, yeah, 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 this is how we really do it. You know, <laughs> so you right. learned that on the job, training. you learn everything in the book is wrong. Yep. And this is how we really do it. And you're like, aren't we supposed to do <laughs> right, it that way? Exactly. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but um, are you comfortable saying what uh, what state you you are working in or you yeah, work in? Um, it's right outside of Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, I worked in Clay County. It was Clay County Fire Rescue is who I was a volunteer for. And I worked for one of the private ambulance companies here in town. Um, I worked for the Orange Park station that they had. So I stayed right here in my community. I've served my community that I've lived in ever since I was 10 years old. Wow. It's, it's great. So what, what, what types of calls did you handle on a daily basis? Like what, what does an EMT do? Everything. You really do everything. You go to everything from uh, somebody who sat in the emergency room for three hours because they've had a cold for a couple weeks and they didn't feel like waiting and they went home and called 911 because they thought it would get them in the back door. All the way to 
all hey. the way to, <laughs> hey, you know, my grandfather is, you know, blue and cold. What do I do? I mean, and then you have your fire calls. Oh. And me, I kind of really focused myself on getting more training for auto accidents. I actually went to the Florida State Fire mm -hmm. College and took auto extrication courses there because my wow. sister dying in a car crash, I wanted to have all the tools on my belt to be able to get people out of cars and to keep them safe, keep myself safe, and keep others around me safe. Um, these cars nowadays. Was that? Go ahead. Do you have, do you have children? I did. I, uh, I actually not, not at the time, right? at the time I did have a child. Um, he was born in 99. So he was literally a baby as I was going through all of my training and everything else. So I, on, on top okay. of trying to build the career and get all of that going, I also had a family at the house and I was trying to spend time with them as I could also. Right. Right. Yeah. So most first responders go through that. They don't have time for their families. They're always at work. Very right? true. Very true. Yeah. So, so what calls were the most difficult for you to handle? Like physically, let's not talk about emotions right now. Like physically, what was the hardest part for you? Physically, I would have to say fires because here in Florida, you know, you don't get the convenient fires that happen when it's 40 degrees outside and putting on a bunch of bunker gear feels great. <laughs> Instead, <laughs> you have you have 100 degrees with 80% humidity and you have to fully bunker out and then go inside of a structure. It's beyond miserable. It, physically, that was the most active. Okay. You keep saying bunker out, and I'm a police officer, so I don't know what bunker oh, out. Is. A I'm lot of sorry. listeners probably don't know. So what it, it's okay. What is that? I had mean? to put on all of my firefighter toys. So you had police toys, and That's we had good. firefighter toys. You know, we had uh, your your bunker gear, which is your coat and pants. Uh, then you have your air tank, which you put on your back. You know, you you mask your helmet, your hood gloves i mean you literally cover every exposed piece of skin so that way when you go into the fire mm -hmm. you don't turn into bacon <laughs> absolutely <laughs> now i'm going to tell you uh -oh. a quick story in my academy to become a deputy sheriff we had this thing called the the hot house and we had to go through it no matter what and i was like well i'm not a fireman i'm not training to be a fireman why the heck do i have to go through this freaking hot house but we did we went out to the um to the California Highway Patrol grounds and they had this this big huge brick building out there and it was called Hot Fire and we had to go through it. The uh, fire fire department was there. We were all there and we were in the academy. I was scared to death for 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 one, I can't put masks on my face. I'm like deathly afraid of um you know claustrophobic mm -hmm. and I I'm, I'm like I can't breathe, I can't breathe even though you can breathe. I, I, I had to do so much self-talk to get myself into that mask. It was horrible. Yeah. I didn't really care about going in the burning building. I, I trusted them. I knew that I wasn't going to get hurt. And I, um, we went in at flashover too. 
so that scared the crap out of me. Um, when the air around you, you're like, this is going to be flashover, and I'm like, scary. wait, what? <laughs> yes, yes. I was like, wait, the air is on fire. How is that possible? It was just really weird. But but I I wasn't scared of of the fire too much because, like I said, I trusted the firemen. Like I trusted them. But my gear, I didn't trust yeah. my gear at all. And everyone kept saying, just trust your gear. I'm like, no, I mean, this could fail at any moment and I will die in there. Like I, I'm so scared of that. And so that, that was really hard for me to do. It took about an hour, I would say to, to work up my, yeah. my nerve. I'm like nervous right now talking about <laughs> it. It's weird. I'm like, my palms are actually sweating. What's scary <laughs> is because I'm glad I never have police. To- a lot of times you are the first ones on the scene of a fire. If somebody's in there screaming, yeah, it is very difficult to sit right. there and look at the house and go, "Damn, they need to get out." You, you don't do that. So even yeah. without There's no gear, gear. <laughs> you just run that's in. exactly it. Even without uh-huh. gear, you will run up to the house, hacking and coughing for your life, and try to help those people because that is what I know you have inside of you. You can't just sit there and watch something right, exactly. happen to somebody. That's why you were in that job. Mm-hmm. And you see it all the mm-hmm. time on live PD. Mm-hmm. They're just driving. They're like, oh, shit, the house is on fire. And they just run straight up to right. it. Right. And it, it's, it <sighs> takes a special person to be a police officer, to be, be a fireman, to be an EMT. It takes a special person because you literally put everybody else before yourself. And... Sometimes it costs you your job. During your yeah. shift, you do. That's Sometimes true. it actually costs right. you your livelihood Cost. because you literally do mm-hmm. put them before you. That is the priority. Right. So what calls were the most difficult for you to handle emotionally? Can you talk about Children. That? Children. The, those, are, those are the are faces we- that I still see today. Are we talking about children in car accidents or children that <sighs> choke on things? Or is it just all everything? Everything. Like, the like the babies? Yeah. The, anytime a child loses their life or is hurt because of the incompetence of the adults around them, you really wish you could just grab the adult and shake the hell out of them. But you have to keep it together and be professional. You have to look at the kid that is looking Mm -hmm. at you for help and you have to hold it together to, to help them. And because if they smell fear, so if they can see it in your face that you're freaking out because this kid has third degree burns to 60% of their body and you're like, Oh my God, this kid isn't going to live. You're freaking out. You you can't sit there and freak out along with the parents and everybody else. You have to pull it together and take care of them to the best of your abilities. And then once you turn them over, a lot of times you don't even know what happens to them. You might have it in your head that, you know, that poor kid, you know, they're not going to make it, whatever. But because of all these HIPAA laws and stuff now, you don't even find out what happens to them in the end. So you, you just see this crying kid. And you, I mean, it's just, you could hear a kid crying in a store and all of a sudden it could trigger just that, that face of the kid looking at you and crying. And that's, that's the most difficult thing, you know, cause kids, a lot of times 
aren't the ones that are doing anything to themselves. It's due to them not being watched by the adults. It's due to them not being buckled up by the adults. It's due to the adult trying to blow the red light and they get hit. Mm-hmm. Kids are the true innocent victims in almost everything that they're involved with. That's the most difficult emotional part of the job. Right. Do you suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder? Yeah, yeah I do. Um, I know that it's really frowned upon to talk about that, especially in the fire community, because you're going to be getting, oh, well, you just weren't cut out for the job. No, I was cut out for the job fine. I did my job great. Um, people shouldn't see what people do to others, you know, but some, some of us chose to go into that profession to try to make a difference. And there are, there are things that you just, you do, you can't unsee. There's things you can't, you can't mm-hmm. forget the smells of. You can't, I mean, you know, in your book, the very first chapter, I'm sitting there reading that and <laughs> I don't want to give away your book, but I'm sitting there reading that story and it brought me back to when I was learning my auto extrication at the Florida State Fire College. There was one car in this entire junkyard didn't have a scratch on it. We couldn't figure out what was going on. We walked up, we looked at it like, this car is beautiful. It's a nice Lexus. What's going on with this? We noticed this little red tape over every entrance into the car. We're like, hmm, that's weird. It says evidence on it. We looked inside and it looked like um, little dangly strings hanging down from the roof line all around the car. Evidently, someone decided to take their life inside that car. And that was actually blood and brain matter that was throughout the vehicle. That explained why it was inside of that junkyard. And just... You know, I forgot about that story until I read the book. I'm like, ah, yeah, there was that one time. You know, it's just, no, no, no. I mean, (laughs) preparing for this interview, you know, you're, you're talking about, okay, you know, think of some stories and a lot of stuff that you actually block out or that you just kind of forget and just don't really think about. And then you sit down and you actually start thinking about calls and it's like, Oh, I remember that one. Oh, then there was this one. And it kind of brings it all back up to the forefront, you know? So, right. Yeah, right. I, I do. Do you think that it's, do you think it's, mm, and you can be totally honest with me here. Do you think it's therapeutic for you to even be talking about it right now? Or is it, or do you think you're going to hang up and go, this, this sucks. I shouldn't have been thinking no. about this. Like, what do you think about that? I don't know. I, I don't tend to talk about a lot of things voluntarily. I, don't, I guess I got that from my dad. That's what being an intelligence and he never told me anything about his work. So I never told anybody about my work, mm-hmm. but um, no, no talking about it. It is therapeutic. You know, it gets it off your chest. And a lot of times, especially when you're talking to other people that were in the job, they, you know, since they've been through, it's not the exact same thing. They've been through similar things. They will also say, Oh, I had the same thing. Well, you know, you didn't put them in that position. You just went there to try to help them. And, you know, you get the little attaboy, you tried everything you could. Yeah. It's, 
it it does help talking about it, but like you can't unsee stuff. You know that. No matter how much you talk no, about it, I know. it doesn't leave. And I, and yeah, and, and you were talking a little bit ago about the triggers, like um, you hear a baby cry or a kid cry in a store and it, and it you know, you get yeah, flashbacks, you right? Um, that, that's what, that's what I tend to get. Like I have not been diagnosed with PTSD, but I get a lot of, a lot of, um, I, I call them PTSD yeah. moments because that's, that's just the best way I can explain it where I'm just walking around and I see somebody and it looks just like a homicide victim. And I know it's not them, but my brain mm-hmm. thinks it's them. And it's, it's really weird. Um, smells, smells are a big thing. Th- like, you know, in my book, did you read did you read I the entire book? I got I got the first chapter, yeah. but with me okay. in the shop and everything, I'm just running ragged. I don't have too many. I just I didn't want to give it away, but like when you know when people like like one time somebody came to my door holding an axe to your door. <laughs> but I I had hired the person. Yes, I had hired the person to take out a tree okay. stump in the front yard. So of course they had an axe in their hand, and I and I should have expected that, but but. But it just, it literally brought me back like to this, uh, ax murder that I worked for 12 hours and it was disgusting and mm-hmm. a horrible day. And it just, it, it caught me off guard. So I just, little things like that, just, um, just tend to, you know, leak when you're looking at the person weird. and the back of your mind's like, oh shit, this is how it starts, you know? And it's just, <laughs> that's just what your mind kind of goes to. And you know, yeah, and when you're right, watching people yeah. driving poorly, yeah. it's like, okay, well, this is how some of the worst calls of my life started right here. And I'll oh tell you one gosh. thing, working for the fire department keeps me from speeding now. Yeah. I bet. I bet. And you know, that's funny that you say that because, um, because I remember a long time ago in, in the academy this California Highway Patrol, that's who we trained with because they're the ones that had the, mm-hmm. the track that we trained on. They said over and over, curves kill, curves kill, curves kill. And I remember that today. And every time I go around a curve, I slow down because I remember the CHP officer saying and curves kill. You know what they Isn't thought that of? Weird? Intersections kill. Intersections. Yeah. So when a light turns, light turns green, green, light turns I'm red. I'm so anal yep. and I look both ways. I, I don't hit the accelerator yeah. as soon as I go. <laughs> if you're running code, it doesn't matter. If your light is green, you still watch. I mean. Oh. Yeah. oh, right. Yeah. Oh, no. I'm I'm very, uh, I have my daughter in the car with me the majority of the time. So I, I do it for yeah. her mostly. I, um, so, no, I was just saying, I, I was a very hovering father and tried to prevent all these injuries and all these problems that I could. And it still doesn't work out sometimes. I mean, you, you can protect them all you want. Sometimes you just have to kick them up the nest and let them do their thing, you know? And it's like, put your helmet on, make sure you're wearing pads. Okay. Well, make sure you're in before the lights go off. You know, it's just, I mean, it's just, you know, you, where you're seeing all this bad stuff and it's like you project it right, right. to your child. They're going I know. It's down. like all the other kids are jumping off the roof onto the trampoline and into the pool right next to the pile of bricks. I'm right. like No. You right. know I'm the bad guy. You know. Exactly. <laughs> I know. Because you've seen I it. Know. You've, you've responded to all those calls. You know, a kid why. just swinging on a swing and he comes off. Well now he's got 
you know, radius and ulnar fractures, which are the two bones in your lower arm broken on both arms. And it's like, all the kid was doing was swinging. So now every time I see my kid on a swing, it's like, don't go too high. I don't want you to wind up like the kid I took from the trauma center. You know, it just, (laughs) here, just put these pillows around you and just walk around like the state puff marshmallow man. (laughs) Drove him crazy. Poor kid. Well, I'm, I'm actually curious to know how how your career ended. I don't I don't even know if you retired or if you got out um, because of a physical injury. But let's take a break really quick, and and then we're gonna we're gonna talk about that. So we'll be right back. Are you looking for Thin Blue Line gear? It's available on our website at thinbluelineforwomen.com. That's Thin Blue Line, the number four women.com. Show your support for law enforcement and get your Thin Blue Line gear today. Just click on shop at thinbluelineforwomen.com. Have you ever wondered what being a part of CSI is really like? If so, here's your chance to experience it. In my book titled Through My Eyes, CSI Memoirs That Haunt the Soul. Through My Eyes contains 11 personal accounts of the most grueling and heartbreaking crime scenes I worked during my 15 years in the Crime Scene Investigations Unit. While reading my book, you'll walk inside the crime scene tape with me. You'll catch a glimpse of what I saw, touched, smelled, and even tasted during an average work day. I'll take you on a difficult journey of memories uncovering layers of emotional trauma left behind. Dare to join me? Through My Eyes is available now on Amazon. We are back with Greg, AKA the Broken Medic. Um, Before we talk about how your career um, ended, I, I wanna know your opinion um, I hope it's, I hope you give me a good answer. What's your opinion on women being, um, an EMT or a firefighter? We need more of them. Uh, it translates over into the police sector too. They always bring a sense of levity to a, a situation. They, they're a calm head. Um, if you go up, especially when you have these people that are, intoxicated that are on drugs that aren't right in the head. Um, If it's a male talking to a male, a lot of times there's the ego battle between the two where you have a female officer, female paramedic, female firefighter come into the scene. There's no ego show between the two of them. It's almost like a, mother figure talking to the patient or talking to the subject and believe it or not nine times out of ten you won't have to restrain the person you won't have to beat them down that's that simple you know calm motherly voice to them telling them calm down let's talk about it let's go over here and sit down that diffuses a lot of situations and wow. a lot of times 
as a male, we don't allow ourselves to back down. It becomes a show of egos. And that's not what it's all about, but there's something in us that's just the way that we do it. So it, mm-hmm. it, I always enjoyed having a female partner because of that exact reason. You know, it's not about physicality. It's about your entire package that you're bringing onto the scene. And when you have somebody that's combative and you can talk them down, especially in the back of a truck, it is so much nicer not having to restrain them and listening to them scream for 20 minutes (laughs) on the way to a hospital Uh. when she can just sit back there and talk to them and they're holding a normal conversation. It's a much easier ride to the hospital. So no, I I greatly, I greatly encourage women to please, please, please go to school. Go get your firefighter and your EMT cert. Go to your paramedic. Go to your police training. Do it. Don't let anybody tell you that you don't belong out there because you are very needed out there. Well, I'll tell you, I I, I wouldn't be able to put on all your gear and that tank and especially the mask and climb up all those stairs like in your in your academy. I, I couldn't do that. You're, you're saying that women can do that, but I'm oh, here definitely. to tell you... Oh, I guess if I had to, then I would, but oh man, oh gosh, I would not want to do (laughs) too much for me. It's difficult for all of us, but I mean, yeah, if you have a 110 pound frame woman carrying 50 pounds of gear upstairs, it's going to be hard, but you know what? You get a 300 pound fat guy carrying 50 pounds of gear upstairs. It's hard for him too. So you know (laughs) what? (laughs) It's it's hard for all of us. So yeah, Mm -hmm. it's. You know, you luckily we're in Florida. If we go up more than one flight of stairs, we start to get nosebleeds. So we're pretty good. <laughs> we don't have a whole lot of stairs to climb up. So no basements <laughs> to go in. Florida's pretty right, good. Right, right. That. Yeah. That's good. So, um, how can you tell us how your career ended? Did you retire? Did you, like, what happened? I called a medical retirement. Um, okay. We were on a call. We had a patient, um, we were literally walking into the hospital and she started going to respiratory distress and she was tanking hard. Um, I don't know if the, uh, the sedatives were wearing off or what was going on, but she was really panicking. The more she panicked, the worse she got. Her oxygen saturation was going through the floor. So we had to get her into the <laughs> dog. Say hi. We had to get her. <laughs> we had to get her into the hospital bed fast, so that way respiratory could get her back on the ventilator and get her breathing. Because I don't know why they took her off of one to begin with, but oh wow, I'm I'm just a stupid EMT. I didn't know anything, but um, mm-hmm. so she was crashing. You know, we called for the code. Everybody was supposed to be running, but it seemed like it was taking hours. I know it's probably seconds, but it seemed like it took forever. So respiratory was there. There was an aide there, and then it was me and my partner. So being a rather large patient, uh, the aide and my partner were on one side of the patient, and I was doing a sheet draw going across the bed onto the, the hospital bed. Well, when we transferred the patient, I literally blew all of my lumbar vertebrae. Uh, all lumbar discs out. 
So I had herniated discs all through my uh, L234. And um, that took me out. I had to have surgery to get that repaired. Um, Wow. Never even got back to, say, 80 cent after surgery. Um, And then I went for a spinal cord stimulator to be placed and I got paralyzed from that. So I I literally was taken out of the game, just not doing the number one thing and taking care of myself. I, I put the patient before myself, which we tend to do. And it cost, it cost me my, it, it didn't cost me my job, but you know, the injury cost me my job. But we both mm-hmm. live. It's 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 a it's not a sad story. It's a good. It's honestly a <laughs> good story. Good. You know, she lived. I lived. She, I had some pain, but she was in much worse shape than me. So you know, I good on her. I'm glad that she lived through the whole thing and did good. I did good. I've got my family, and you know, I just there's always you know there's always you gotta make lemonade out of lemons that life throws you. So. Oh, yeah. What year did this happen? How long ago? This happened in 2012. Yeah. So you've been retired for eight years. Oh, God. It seems like yesterday. Yeah. It's been a while. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it has. It's so been do you, a do you, long while. Do you miss it? Do you miss the job? I do greatly. Yeah, I, I, I miss the action. I miss driving code. I miss helping people. I, I miss the smile that you can get out of somebody who's super sick and it's the worst day of their life but you crack a little joke and you really make their miserable day that much better that little smile they give you it's that's sweet it's it's something that makes you feel good as a person you know yeah i do i miss that i miss it a lot so in all of these years working you have to have a funny story can you tell us one (laughs) you have to have one I, uh, this is my favorite. I don't know if it's going to be anybody else's, but this one makes me giggle every time I think of it. We had just finished a Christmas parade at the station I was at, and we brought all the trucks back, took out all the candies and stuff we were throwing for the, uh, for the community. We got a call for a suicide attempt in another district. So we're like, all right, cool. We're going to go on this. So we're going and uh, we get the call that PD's on scene. Everything is safe. We can go ahead and continue in. We pull up to this 12 foot trailer that, I mean, things tiny. It's in the middle of the woods and the patient's inside of the trailer. We go in there and there's a guy sitting there watching TV, beer in his hand. And he has this hunting Bowie knife sticking out of his chest. He literally took the knife and stabbed it into his left upper chest, thinking that that was where his heart was, but he actually caught oh. the he caught the meat right where the uh, chest and the uh, the shoulder come together and he he sank it. Wait. He's alive at this point? He is what he's pissed because we told him to put the beer down to get him out and put him on the stretcher. Oh. So, Oh my goodness. He's alive. Okay. He, he's talking. He's he's had as you guys hear it all the time, two beers. Um <laughs> so that translates yep. to like nine or ten. But, um, right. but he's literally sitting there watching TV with a beer in his hand with the knife sticking out of his chest. He didn't take it out. He just 
he stabbed himself and he literally stabbed himself oh. to where it sunk to the, the handle. So we secure the knife because you don't want to move a patient without securing it. And we couldn't get the stretcher in there. The place is tiny. We're like, sir, can you stand up? And he's like, oh, yeah, sure. He hops right up. We're like, all right, this is good. Sat down the stretcher. We got him in the back of the rescue. And at this point, we're so far from the trauma center, we had to call in what we called an ATU, an air transport unit. So we called the helicopter. We had him on standby when we were driving there. As soon as we saw the injury, we confirmed, fly him now. So by air, the transport to the trauma center is nine minutes. By ground, we're talking about 40. So it's a really, really quick flight. So we get to the landing zone with this guy in the back of the ambulance, and we're getting everything set. We didn't even start the IV yet. Well, as soon as we stopped the rescue, it, it's the transport to the landing zone was a minute. We just had to get out of the woods to where the school was. We <laughs> were in the back of the rescue. It's me and my lieutenant. There's another firefighter in there. And of course, we're surrounded by cop cars. And we're like, we need to start an IV on you, get some fluids going. We actually need to start two IVs on them, but that's beside the point. So my lieutenant has the IV in his hand and he's going to place the catheter in this guy's arm. This guy jumps out of the stretcher and he has this look of fear in his face. And we don't know what he's going to do. We don't know if he's going to start swinging on everybody, what he's going to do. And he looks at the lieutenant and he goes, what are you doing? And the lieutenant's like, I told you, I need to start an IV on you. He goes, is that going to hurt? My lieutenant, <laughs> my lieutenant deadpan looks the guy in the eyes and says, not as much as that damn knife you have in your chest. Sit down and be still. Oh I, my god! He he could stab himself through his chest Ew. to where a Bowie knife is hanging out, looking like an antenna. But he was worried about the IV catheter hurting. That is, I cannot even grasp that in my brain. The what mentality the of that is just unbelievable. And I did. I got out of the back of the rescue and started laughing. I couldn't do it inside the rescue. Uh, I. I had to maintain some type of professionalism in front of the patient, but <laughs> I removed myself from the ambulance. And I started laughing and the cops saw the commotion. They come up and like, what's going on? I was like, the guy wants to know if the IV is going to hurt. And they looked at me and I'm like, yes, I'm serious. And of course everybody's laughing at him. But here's a little side note that made me laugh even more. They all laughed until they found out that they had to go on the helicopter with the guy because the helicopter wouldn't oh. transport him with a knife in his chest because he could take it out and stab them. True. So one of the Very officers true. got to take a helicopter ride and then be stuck at the hospital until his buddies came to pick him up. And handcuff him to the gurney. He yep. was not happy. But that, that, that is probably the funniest story that I've, I've ever encountered. You know, oh. if you could stab yourself in the chest. What a weirdo. Stab yourself in the chest, but the IV's going to hurt. Yes, sir. It's going to hurt like hell. Just hold still. What a freak. Uh, yeah. You think? <laughs> was he Was he high, too, or just drunk? No, just drunk. Do you know? No, just drunk. Old Milwaukee's oh. best. It's, it's, gosh. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, my Lord. But that is that, oh, that, that, that was the uh, the doozy funny call that I had. Did he live? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was great. He he happened to miss every vital structure in there. Um, they took it out. He bled a little bit, but... 
got him good to go. I mean, it's, I mean, luckily he missed his heart by far. He missed his lung and he missed a lot of the big vessels that are in there that really would have made him bleed That's out quick. Yeah, he, he did great. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Good gosh. Never had to go back to him. I guess so. he's probably great. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's probably back in his 12 foot trailer today, enjoying all of his beers. Maybe he sees probably. the lighter side now. Oh, so do do you have any words of advice for other firefighters, other EMTs about anything, about the job, about the trauma that you go through emotionally, about how to take care of yourself while you're on the job? Because there's a lot of a lot of people starting these jobs right now. Yeah. Um, there's anything a, we can, any advice you can give them? There's a lot of things to touch on. Uh, police, firefighters, EMTs, uh, nurses. I mean, First things first, you've got to take care of number one. I'm a prime example. I didn't take care of number one. If I would have waited for help to come, I'd still be on the job. Um, if you don't take care of number one, who else is going to help take care of the patient when or the, the subject or whatever you're doing? Who else is going to take care of that job for you when you're down? So always look out for yourself. Um, and really the only other thing I have to say is you're going to see some stuff on the job. That's all there is to it. When I was on the job, no one knew about PTSD for us. It was only a, a, mm -hmm. a bunch of letters for people in the military. It didn't happen to us. Um, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. The, mm -hmm. One of the very last calls I went through on the fire, fire department is the one that still haunts me today. And we didn't even do critical scene debriefing anything back then. And I, I don't was just going to ask you if you guys did that. I don't know if that would have made a difference. It was that difficult of a call, but maybe talking about it right after the fact, maybe it would have helped. I don't, I don't know if, if it would have honestly, um, like I said, some of the things you just can't unsee. I don't think talking about it would have helped. But talking about it with your peers even, just don't hold it in. You know, we all see something mm -hmm. different. We all we all process things differently. And maybe if you right, can get exactly if you can get a fresh look on a scene through somebody's else's somebody else's eyes, maybe it can kind of help you see the scene differently in your memories. I don't know. Yeah, because a lot of my scenes, um, you know, I, I did a lot of my work with my best friend who I dedicated the book to. Yeah. She was with me on a lot of scenes for eight years. And and she'll say things about a scene and I'm like, what? I don't remember that at all. Like, yeah. I remember things differently. But yeah. of course, we remember the same things too. But it's weird how people's brains will remember things. Yeah, I mean. And others won't. And some of our scenes, it all depends on what your position on the scene was. You know, if you go to the scene yeah. that has the three kids that are dying and the mom that's dead, you know, was it you that the child was looking in the eyes when they took their last breath? That hurts a lot more than somebody that's sitting there holding a fire hose because, you know, on a bad accident scene, you want to have a fire hose out just in case something ignites. This one happened to have fuel everywhere. It was bad. But, you know, sometimes I wish I was just the guy that was sitting over on the hose and kind of looking at the scene from the outside.
but yeah yeah but the, if if your department offers a critical incident debriefing go to it you're not weak because you go oh, yeah. you're not being a baby you're not being whiny just go to it you know it, yeah i went i went to mine on the big calls if it, for sure if it all comes down to taking care of number 1 that is also taking care of number 1 there's a reason they have grief mm-hmm. counselors. There's a reason you go and talk to it, talk about it. it right. You know, it's just look at the resources and use what's available. Don't wait until you're mm-hmm. X amount of years out the job and then you keep seeing faces and hearing the cries and, you know, thinking about them that way. You know, I mean, think about the good things that you did on the job, but don't let the bad things haunt you. Yeah. You know? That's good advice. Do you have any advice for citizens? Like um, just everyday safety advice, like, like drive, you know, driving, you were an EMT and you were fire. So can you give us anything to help people remember? Slow down. Everybody, if, (laughs) if you're late, you're going to be late anyway. You know, if it's a problem, leave earlier the next time, just slow down. Think of other people. You know, put your phone down. Um, I won't even have my phone on me most of the time when I'm in the car. I'll throw it in the back seat because all it takes is glancing down for a second. And that's it. That fast. And you're rear-ending somebody. You're hitting a kid that comes out from the side. Just, you know, slow down and pay attention. You know, if you're coming up on an intersection and the light's turning yellow, maybe not punch it and go through. Maybe go ahead and stop. If you if you don't have a bunch of right. cars riding your tail and you can stop safely, stop. You know, it's just mm-hmm, mm-hmm. think of other people, I guess, is the best advice I could give because everything that you should be doing impacts other people, you know, and if you should be doing the speed limit and you're doing 20 over, well, guess what? You're not hitting a pole every single time you could be hitting another car and that's another person's life that you're putting in jeopardy. Um, right. Right. My, my son was riding his motorcycle home. He worked two jobs trying to start a life with his little girlfriend. And because somebody wasn't paying attention at an intersection, he pulled out in front of him and killed my son. So you've had a lot of trauma in your life, losing your sister. Yeah. That's how it started. And losing your son. That's what ended. Yeah. And yeah. then, and then now you have all this trauma of the job that's just with you forever now. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. You know, it's you know trauma. I mean, trauma. That's exactly what it is. It's traumatic to your 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 psyche, to your mind. You know, and yeah. So, how are you taking care of yourself now, today? Um, I'm doing good. You know. I need to be busy and I'm trying my best to be busy. And a buddy of mine, he had a gun shop years ago and he and I were talking and he's like, Hey, you know, I want to open up a gun shop now. Yeah. I think I'm ready. He's got a son on the way. He wants to try. He's a nurse. Also, he works for the pediatric trauma center downtown. And, um, he's like, Hey, let's, let's start a gun shop. And I was like, you know what? I'm in because in my condition, I can't work for anybody else. I can work for him because if I get tired or I, I start coming to pass out or whatever, 
I lock the door, I go in back and I lay down. I don't have to go, hey man, I'm going to go lay down. They're going to be like, make sure you clock out. And if you do it again, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now it's like, dude, I'm going to go right, back right. and watch TV. He'll be like, whatever. You know, <laughs> so. <laughs> so that's what I'm doing now, you know. That's so cool. Yeah, it is. That's awesome. And you know what is helping is unexpectedly um the insurance money that I was not expecting for the death of my son is going into opening the shop. So in my head it's kind of a rebirth. You know, it's it's a it's something else that I can raise from an infant and hopefully and get it to grow up and be good. So that's that, good. I like the way you put that. That's yeah, nice. That, that's, you know, I'm not looking to profit from my child's death, but if I can grow something and still continue to help people, Absolutely. I, I like that, you know, so I'm, I'm going to jump in with yeah, both feet yeah. and hopefully it does well. And, you know, it, it, it grows up and it's a, a good project it's a good uh venture for us that's awesome greg thank you so much for joining me today i really appreciate your time you're welcome thank you for having like me like i said you're the first guy you're the first guy on my podcast and i'm happy about that first emt slash firefighter so that's cool Hopefully I'm not the last. so i really put no no i'm i'm hoping and we're gonna have safe call now on on soon so we're gonna talk to them as well so i appreciate it thank you so much for your you're time you're very welcome Join me next week as I talk with a 911 dispatcher. She opens up and talks about stress, anxiety, and depression. I'll see you next week. The Real Life Podcast was recorded and is being made available by Anchor.fm and its affiliates solely for the informational and entertainment purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided and or expressed on the Real Life Podcast are entirely those of the host, guests, and callers, and are responsible for all show content and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the agencies and communities that the guests may serve. Some parts of the Real Life Podcast may contain adult content intended for people who are 18 years of age or older. Please listen responsibly.